Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Lington. Today, Gray Center Co-Executive Director Adam White and I are speaking with Jonathan Wolfson. He is the Chief Legal Officer and Policy Director for the Cicero Institute, which advocates state-level policies that restore liberty, accountability, and innovation in governance. Jonathan is here to discuss his new report, ranking states based on whether the regulatory processes encourage accountability, responsiveness, and transparency. Jonathan, welcome to Gray Matters. Thanks so much for having me, Jason Adam. I'm really glad to be here. So just starting as generally as I can, what does your new report tell us about the regulatory climate in the states? Yeah, so my colleague Matthew Nolan and I started looking around at the states and at the Cicero Institute, we focus all of our regulatory reform efforts and all of our kind of policymaking ideas on trying to bring accountability, responsiveness, and transparency to policymaking and specifically in the regulatory space in regulation. And so we started to evaluate whether states had regulatory processes in place that really did advance those sorts of goals. And so we really focused on a nationwide survey of the statutes on the books. And I should clarify before we get too deep into this, there are some really great executive orders that some governors across the country, whether that's in Idaho or in Virginia or other places have put in place. We did not evaluate states based on executive orders for a number of reasons, which I'm sure we can get into later. But we looked at the statutes that are on the books in the states and looked at the specific laws and whether or not they had a office in their state that actually reviewed the regulations, whether they had some sort of independent review that wasn't just inside the agency body itself, whether they had some sort of sunset or other review process over time that the state had to go through, whether or not the state required that there was cost-benefit analysis when promulgating a regulation, and then finally, on the back end, once the regulation was out, whether or not the citizens had to go to the state capital or one specific venue for court if they wanted to challenge a regulation. And so we looked at the state regulation or the state statutes on regulation for those four areas, evaluated them, kind of walked through each individual state, and then ranked them accordingly. Kind of the states that had all of those things received really good, good rankings, and the states that lacked those things received lower rankings. You know, I found the, the the criteria you picked very, very interesting. I have to admit, I wouldn't have thought off the top of my head about venue. Um, I mean, I think about venue in this context. I wouldn't have thought about it in a scoreboard like this, but the report does a nice job of explaining the impacts of it, how they're not necessarily the same in, say, California versus a small state like Rhode Island. But maybe just take a step back since you've already kind of raised the, the, the criteria that you did. Can you give us a sense of how you arrived upon those? Are there any that you considered adding, but just it turned out they weren't workable? Um, maybe explain your, your thought process around selecting the criteria. Yeah, that's a great question, Adam. So yeah, we did look at some additional criteria. What we were trying to do is, you know, you look at regulatory reform, and I have some background in federal regulatory work when I was in the Department of Labor and in private law practice before I was in government. And so you know kind of the things that people typically talk about, but more often than not, what people end up talking about in regulatory spaces are the regulations themselves. They talk about a particular regulation here and there, and often organizations try to do things to deal with a problem that's presented by one particular regulation, rather than trying to think of a system-wide approach where you really try to tie the hands of the regulators to do what the legislature has said or allow the executive branch to really administer those regulations. So we tried to focus 
on statutes on the books that really constrain the process, not on particular regulations themselves. And so that's really how we arrived at these four. But we did look at some other things. One thing we looked at was what kind of deference the state uh, courts gave toward regulations. One of the challenges in doing that is it doesn't really matter what your state statutes say there. That has mostly to do with what the courts really do. You know, I know you guys did uh, a presentation up at Harvard a few months ago where you're talking to a bunch of state judges and they said, you know, the legislature can tell us what they tell us, but ultimately we, the judges, are going to decide what kind of deference we give to those regulations. And so we started to find that. We dug into a bunch of cases and then we realized that regardless of what the statute said, sometimes the judges said, we have uh, particular principles that we follow, and that's really what's going to make the decision of how we do it. So that's really, in many ways, how we came to these four particular ones. And you bring up venue, and that the interesting thing about venue, especially in the state courts, right? Most of us think about these regulatory issues at the federal level. Regulatory issues winding up in the D.C. Circuit, sure, there might be an argument that that's not the only place they should go, and a lot of cases don't. But when presidents are choosing judges for the D.C. Circuit, they do so with an eye toward knowing administrative law cases are going to wind up there, right? We see Judge Rao got on the court in part because she had experience and knowledge from her time at OIRA. And so it makes sense that someone with that type of background would wind up being a part of administrative law cases. But if you go to Texas, where the Cicero Institute is headquartered, Travis County judges are elected. And I've looked at advertising material from those judges. I've looked at the kind of the things that are important to the voters. And as much as we legal nerds kind of love administrative law, I can tell you that that is not in any way, shape or form part of the process of electing those judges in Travis County. And so you don't end up with administrative law experts on the bench. And so you just end up with good generalists, not questioning their ability to be good judges, but no good reason that those uh, administrative law cases couldn't be brought in Beaumont or in San Antonio and have to go to court in Austin. Well, Jace, we've, so far our guest has plugged uh, one Gray Center Symposium and uh, the Gray Center's founder. So I'm just going to declare this the all-time greatest episode of Gray Matters and uh, turn it back over to you. I'll second that. And we saw some venue reform actually yesterday in Congress. They were debating moving or at least allowing some people to bring suits in closer courts in western Washington State and in western Texas instead of having to drive over 100 miles. So it seems our federal policymakers are thinking along those lines, too. I think this is also a good time. You mentioned up at the top that you wanted to focus on statutes in this report. Can you explain a little bit more why you discounted some of the executive actions? You mentioned some in Idaho and Virginia. Yeah, and these executive actions have been really important and have had a really positive effect. You know, in Idaho, they put executive actions in place that were able to create a regulatory sunset that pretty much got rid of a huge chunk of problematic regulations. And the team that is working with Governor Little in Idaho is doing a really great job of using those executive orders to really kind of tighten the reins on what was happening in some of their administrative agencies. They didn't have a runaway state regulatory system. It's not like some of the worst offenders that we see in the United States, but they realized that a lot of those regulations were stifling business and they put some really good reforms in place. The reason that we focused on statutes rather than regulation was really threefold. The first is just the very simple, it's a lot easier to know what is on the books when you're trying to do a national analysis. So that is just the, the practical reality of, we don't have a hundred people doing this, but it's a lot easier to know kind of what's on the books and be able to evaluate that. 
The second is the permanence of executive orders is a lot more limited. So in Ohio, for example, every executive order expires the day the executive leaves office. Doesn't matter how good they are, doesn't matter whether the new executives all completely agree with them, those executive orders go away and they have to be reproposed. And so there's there's also a question of whether or not a executive order is going to have the lasting effect. And given the fact that the regulatory state is not going away, right? The regulatory the regulatory state is going to exist unless and until the state or federal legislatures are passing such perfect clear laws that everybody knows what the rules are at all times, which let's not hold our breath for that. Unless we're there, then you're going to have the regulatory state. But if you have some restrictions on them that are put in statute, we thought that those were going to be more permanent. And the third and final really has more to do with the ethos of an agency. When I was working at the U.S. Department of Labor, an executive order comes down and the attitude of a lot of the people you work with is, well, that is only an executive order so long as the current executive is in power. And even if you assume that that executive party is going to get reelected, in many cases, the kind of goal of the staff who work for you is to abide by the law that they know they're going to be held to account by the state legislature and by the people. But if they think that an executive order may or may not last, then their motivation to work kind of as rapidly toward it can be limited. Now, Virginia, Idaho have both, and I'm, I'm going to keep highlighting those two, they've both done a really good job of putting great people in places to make sure those executive orders are implemented well. But trying to figure out whether they're being implemented well is a lot harder, again, when you're trying to do a nationwide ranking. And so those are really the three reasons we focused on statutes instead of also looking at the executive orders. Although, you know, my friends who are in those offices, I will give them as many props as they want about how good a job they are doing. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And thank you for that explanation. That makes sense. Um, before I came to the Gray Center, I had to do some state-level work myself looking at state APAs to compare whether uh, states have non-delegation doctrines based on their separation of powers provisions. And it's a lot easier to compare states when you're not looking at necessarily all of the judicial precedent and, like you said, not taking into account what the executive officials are doing at the same time. Getting into the data a little bit, though, did you find anything that contradicted your expectations? Like, were there bipartisan surprises, or did it kind of track with the idea that you might expect red states to have less onerous requirements than blue states? That's a great question. And, you know, one of the things we were trying to be really careful of when we were going through this was not to just kind of let the biases of people who might kind of think that they're aligned with an organization like ours be kind of the result that came out of this study. You know, and so one of the things that we were really careful to look at was what's really going on on the ground. And, you know, people always talk about California being really regulated and California is really regulated. But every year when Mercatus does their analysis of most regulated states, people in Texas, where Cicero's headquartered, are always upset that Texas is always one of the top three most regulated states. And the reality is that you've got a lot of larger red states that are just as addicted to getting things out of the legislature's hands and into the executive branch's hands as you have in Washington, D.C., or as you have in the bluest states. Now, whether those regulations are more or less onerous, that's a really technical analysis that you have to go into. But the number of regulations in a state like Texas is still pretty significant. 
And so as we were looking at this, we were not shocked, but a little surprised that Colorado came out as the top state in the country. Governor Polis has done a really good job. He's made kind of having a business friendly environment a priority of his. I think that those are some of his like libertarian inklings that are kind of mixed in with his uh, otherwise kind of more Democrat party views of the world. And so I think he really has put an emphasis on making sure that the systems are in place to require agencies to go through all the ropes if they're going to put a regulation in place. You know, I think that one of the surprises maybe, you know, again, maybe not as surprising, but Wyoming is the bottom of the list, right? One of the, toward the very bottom of our list. And so is Louisiana, right? And now Louisiana is unique. I'm licensed to practice law there. You have to go and sit for a three-day bar exam. It's Monday, Wednesday, Friday. They really are protecting the state of Louisiana. There are a lot of unique things about Louisiana civil law. So it's not shocking that Louisiana might have a lot of those things. And Louisiana having a long history of oil and gas exploration, you're going to end up with probably more regulations than you might have in states that don't have that. But the fact that Wyoming and Louisiana both end up at the bottom of our, of our list was a kind of in some ways a confirmation that we had done our job. We'd actually looked at what the statutes on the books really were. Um, and that also shows that there are good opportunities for states, whether they are red, blue, purple, to move up in the rankings, I guess, with the exception of Colorado. They're, they're, they're not going to move up. They're probably hoping that other states don't go and do a lot of these reforms because then they may not be at the top of the rankings anymore. Jonathan, you mentioned at, at the outset of that answer, you referred back to the Cicero Institute. I do want to circle back to that by the end. Um, the Cicero Institute's a, a great and, and pretty new organization, relatively speaking, and so we want to talk a little bit about that, but but not yet. More on the scores. What's, did you notice a, any kind of trend in terms of the easy ways for a lot of states to improve their scores? Uh, what's, what would be the, 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 the one, maybe, or two reforms that most states could benefit from from adopting this or was it was it kind of scattershot yeah no i think that for most states if they were to focus on kind of regulatory sunsets and cost benefit analysis those would be probably not only ways to improve their score but really good ways to impact the regulatory state in their state and you know the, having a requirement that you do a cost benefit analysis that the courts are allowed to look at that cost benefit analysis that you actually have to do a new cost benefit analysis after you receive comments. There's one state which lots of people will think of as very, very conservative and lots of people moved there during COVID. And their requirement in Florida is that they have to do a cost benefit analysis on the proposal, but not on the final. And so interestingly, they have a cost benefit requirement. And so if you say to somebody in Florida, do you do a cost benefit analysis of a, of a proposed regulation? The answer is yes. But then if you do the follow-up of, did you have to update that based on the comments that came from the public? The answer is no. And so I think that that is a way for states to really be honest about what they think the effects are going to be. And similarly, a regulatory sunset is a really good way for states to take a critical view of what they've done in the past. Because as we all know, there's lots of regulations that stay on the books for decades and decades. Texas still has a requirement that certain local board meetings be tape recorded. And it explicitly says tape recorded. And I would be willing to bet that there's probably a lot of local governments that aren't tape recording their meetings. But if somebody was trying to be a good law and order new member of that board, they would probably say, we need a tape recording because the state requires that we have that tape recording. 
The same is true with faxing different forms. You know, I remember when I was in federal government, it, Health and Human Services did an analysis of a number of places that they were requiring people to fax forms to Washington, D.C. instead of submitting them through other secure, probably in many cases, more secure means. And it was a significant number. It wasn't a handful. It was, a you know, hundreds of, you know, hundreds or even thousands of times this was required. And the regulatory sunset lets you get those things off the books, but it also lets you evaluate whether or not the costs and benefits that you claim were, when you did a proposal whether or not those actually have come true. And so I think that both of those are ways states can move up the rankings and also have a really big impact on what's going on in the ground. The tape recording example is pretty funny. I mean, it makes me feel better about the fact that we always record our podcast on gramophone. We always will. But but um, I have to admit, the sunset pr provision criteria was the one I was the most ambivalent about in reading the report. Um, on the one hand, I can see the value, of course, in in, in, in sunsetting regulations, and also, and most importantly, as you said, really confronting agencies with their past projections, making them take this seriously and, and think hard about their future proposals. I did a, a blog post once a thousand years ago. I think call, I called it retrospective review for the future's sake. And it was like the, we, all, we often talk about retro review for the sake of pulling down outdated regulations. And sure, that, that could be useful. But at the very least, retrospective review can really inform um, regulators of their blind spots and their biases going forward. That said, um, for sunsetting, again, I'm ambivalent because there's something to be said about regulatory stability, right? I'm, I, I always like deregulation. Not always, actually. But, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, my instinct is always in favor of rethinking old regulations, but, but, you know, none other than Alexander Hamilton put a premium on steady administration. He actually warned in The Federalist about changing, about administrations changing the rules um, too often. He wasn't talking about regulations, but the same point holds kind of that we should, that if you get too much fluctuation of the rules, that, that imparts a cost of its own. And so please convince me why uh, the, the sunset, sunsetting standard actually is a good thing and not just a, a sort of a, a recipe for, for regulatory chaos. Yeah, no, and that's a, it's a great question. I think that the real challenge with a regulatory sunset is that it has to be done in a way that is honest. It has to be done in a way that any restrictions have real teeth. And it has to be done in a way that understands that there are certain things that should just be kept on the books. But there's, and I'll go kind of backwards on that. There's a really simple way to keep a good regulation on the books forever. And it's called the legislature passing it as a law, right? Like if, if we realize that, hey, we've come to the right conclusion on restrictions on seatbelts and we want to require them, you don't have to have NHTSA issue a seatbelt regulation. Congress can just include it in the next appropriation. And now it's no longer a regulation, it's a statute. And so I think- Yeah, that's, that's, that's even more old fashioned than the gramophone, but okay, continue. <laughs> and, you know, and, and that may be harder at the federal level, but the reality is state legislatures are passing laws. They're getting a lot more done on a regular basis in red states and blue states and purple states, they're moving legislation. And so if there were a regulatory sunset in the state, they really would be able to say, we've determined through this review of our regulations that this entire code section really just belongs in the codified part of our statutes and shouldn't be a regulation, and they could do that. I think the other piece of that um, kind of three parts that I laid out is having real teeth to your sunset review. There are a number of states that have sunset commissions 
that, for example, in Texas, they have a sunset commission that reviews the existence of agencies every four years. Well, that works fine if you're talking about a really small occupational licensing agency. You're going you're gonna to be pretty critical of that one agency. But Texas Health and Human Services Commission, Texas Department of Transportation, those agencies aren't going away. And while they have the ability during that process to go in and revise regulations, they aren't obligated to do it. And I think that that's a really important piece. And then I think having a requirement that those regulations go back through the full state process, whatever it is, right? If your state does full notice and comment with cost-benefit analysis, you got to do the same thing again. If your state requires a cost-benefit analysis and no notice and comment, you need to go back through whatever that process is. If you actually have to go through that entire process, accept the scrutiny from the current public that now is looking at the, the regulation, and then take the risk that that is also going to be challenged in court, I think that that sort of sunset really can be effective because you're right, Adam. There's a lot of times that when you put a sunset in place, you're just going to end up with kind of new opportunities for lobbyists to walk in and influence the process because the only things that are going to sunset if there's not these strict requirements are going to be the things that the lobbyists have been trying to get rid of forever. And building on that point, your data suggests that the states might be more open to cost-benefit analysis and independent review rather than sunset provisions and venue restrictions. Why do you think that is? So I think, you know, on the venue restrictions, I think part of that is that a lot of states are not size-wise, you know, physical size-wise, not that large. And so even if you had a venue restriction in New Hampshire, requiring people to go to the Capitol is not that burdensome. And, you know, if, if that's where the state Department of Justice is that's going to be litigating the case, there are costs to the state of litigating all over the state, right? So I think that some of it is is that. I also think that there's some states that may not have explicit statutory restrictions or a statutory openness on their venues, but the courts may be perfectly happy to hear the case, right? So you might have a state that has nothing on the books at all, uh, that the courts across the states have been willing to hear those cases. And so you might not need a statute to deal with it. Having a statute on the books obviously protects against kind of the future possibility that a state will do what Illinois did this past year, which was limit cases against the state to only being filed in Cook County and down in Sagamon County, which is where Springfield, the capital are. But, you know, that that is something you can kind of protect yourself. I think that the the regulatory sunset it has the challenges that we just talked about. And so I think that's part of why it can be harder to persuade legislators. I think the cost-benefit analysis seems like good government, right? It is hard to imagine if you're a legislator that you have passed something over to a state agency to go ahead and write the regulations to implement your proposed bill and that they would not pay any attention to whether or not that is super burdensome, especially if the law was intended to try to reduce the burdens. Next thing you know, the agency is imposing extra burdens on the populace. So it makes kind of a good governance sense. And then I think independent review is something that states look at the federal model. And there's a lot of times that the federal model is not a good model for what states ought to do. But I do think that the OIRA model really has been an effective way, uh, regardless of what we think about kind of the new circular A4 and that whole conversation. But OIRA has for a long time done a really good job of making sure you don't have regulations that conflict across agencies. You don't have regulations that are completely out of line with where the president and his, administ his administration want to go. And you also protect against having regulations that are going to be really easy for the courts to overturn. You really kind of get that extra check. So I think that states are looking at that and going, that seems to have worked really well. 
And yes, there's some resources that are required. And so maybe the real reason a lot of states haven't done it is more of a resource reason more than it is whether they think it's actually an effective strategy. And so sticking with independent review for a minute, it looks like some of these reforms work together. Is it your sense that independent review would make sunset provisions and cost-benefit analysis more effective? I think they would, because I think that if you had that independent review, somebody sitting inside the governor's office or a group of people sitting inside the governor's office, and you got a cost-benefit analysis that was literally, we believe that taking $1 from every student at school to provide them with, you know, one more cornflake in their lunch is going to be, you know, beneficial across the state. Now, sure, maybe some agency has come up with some story that that's true, but it's going to be really hard when you have somebody sitting on the outside who's looking across all the regulations in the state and thinking about all the burdens you're imposing across all the citizens and say, yeah, that seems net beneficial as compared to the cost. And so I think that you do get that extra scrutiny. And, and I think it also forces the agencies to be a little less kind of convinced of the trueness of their own beliefs, which it's really easy. You know, all of us who've been inside of agencies, you start to believe that your agency is the only one that exists uh, or is the only one who's issuing good rules or issuing kind of good proclamations. And next thing you know, everything you're doing seems to be right. And having somebody on the outside who's looking at lots of different agencies and can say, you know, I realize State Department of Transportation that you really think that this set of restrictions is good. But let me tell you why this is going to be problematic, given all the other things that we're imposing on businesses that are building nearby roads and other sorts of things like that. So I, I think that having that independent review really is an effective strategy. Now, notwithstanding the, the scores that states actually received, I'm curious, um, were any of the states easier or harder to actually analyze? I, I know you, you tried to simplify the analysis in part by focusing really first and foremost on statutes. Um, but just going through the process, were there any, you don't have to name names, but any states that were particularly easy to analyze, particularly hard, and, and what accounts for the difference? Yeah, that's a good question. So I give a ton of credit to Matthew Nolan, who's our regulatory policy manager at the Cicero Institute, for doing the vast majority of the digging through statutes. You know, I, I did, did some digging with him kind of on back end and checking some things, but mostly he was digging in on that, worked with some of our interns and some of our law and policy fellows to gather some data, but he was spending hours and hours and weeks and weeks of his life doing nothing but reading state statutes to really build out this really fascinating data set. And I think that what we found was there are some states that do a really good job of making their statutes easy to find, and then other states that hide them, not behind paywalls, but it's, it is states that will post their state code on uh, scanned PDFs instead of as a you know machine readable file or states that will require for every single new code section you go into you have a capacha little uh, little click to you know prove that you're a real person and not a web crawler and i understand why states are doing those things and i'm not questioning the need for those things but for the purposes of us researchers trying to come to the conclusion those things definitely make it a little harder to dig in when you're having to read you know two dozen, three dozen, five dozen sections of code, and you're having to do seven clicks to get there instead of one. Turning back to the report, um, I'm thinking just in more general terms now, for companies that are operating in multiple jurisdictions, so nationwide, let's say, are most state regulations such that those companies have to comply with only the most onerous 
jurisdiction, or are there sometimes contradictory things that some of these reforms are trying to get at? Yeah, no, unfortunately, if you're a business in the United States and you're in multiple jurisdictions, more likely than not, you're dealing with contradictory or at least regulate, I wouldn't necessarily call them contradictory, but regulations that don't align with one another on a regular basis. And so you'll have, for example, a state that requires you report something every six months and another state next door that requires you report the same thing every nine months, which means that every three months you're effectively going to be filling out the same type of paperwork. And then the other challenge becomes those those forms, even though they may ask the exact same sets of questions, are going to have them in different orders. And so trying to automate those processes becomes harder and harder because every state wants that information presented in a slightly different way. And so I do think that one of the benefits of having a kind of cost-benefit analysis, I know that, for example, Idaho has required as part of their internal cost-benefit analysis reporting that every agency look at the kind of regulatory baseline of states kind of surrounding the state of Idaho to confirm that they are no more burdensome than the nearby states. And so that is not, that's not an official cost benefit analysis, but in order to get that analysis, you obviously have to do the cost benefit analysis first. And so once you have that, knowing that, hey, we're requiring people to fill out this form every three months and all the nearby states require similar reporting every year or every nine months or every 18 months, would it be that bad if in our state we were to go to a similar pattern? And so I think that having these kind of backward-looking reviews, having the requirement that you look at other places in, around uh, your state really do help to make your state more effective at being less burdensome because those businesses, you know, already have the, the millions of pages of federal regulation. So tens, tens of thousands, you know, for a typical business, it's thousands or tens of thousands of federal regs that they have to abide by. And then it's some number of thousands of state regulations in every single state that they're working in. You know, so most businesses don't have to comply with every single federal regulation because there's lots of regulations on businesses and industries that are not theirs. They don't have to comply with every single state regulation. So you don't get to say, oh, they have to comply with all on average 130,000 restrictions in their state. But if you're a trucking company, every federal trucking regulation you have to abide by every single one in the state you're in every single one in the states you might be driving through and so you've got a lot of regulations that you're trying to wade through and unfortunately for the people who run those companies they didn't start trucking companies or construction companies or restaurants because they were lawyers and wanted to learn to navigate the regulatory state they wanted to start their business because they saw a need in their world they felt like they could provide a better service to meet that need and they're trying to do that. But then every single day, they've got regulatory lawyers like us walking into their office saying, hey, have you thought about how you're going to comply with these 50 things? And that just drives up their costs and reduces their ability to provide the services that they want. Switching gears a little bit, I have a question about cost-benefit analysis. In your sense of the state of play, are there generalizable principles that any state could adopt or is there some reason that each state might have a different way to apply whatever cost-benefit analysis regime they adopt? Yeah, I think that there are definitely generalizable principles. I think that the, the concept that you want to look at the typical regulated entities with whatever your regulation is, you want to evaluate what sorts of paperwork burden they're going to have to have if they comply with this 
what sorts of changes to the traditional business model they're going to have. Those are the sorts of things you want to look at. And that doesn't matter whether you're doing a transportation regulation or a water regulation or some sort of health regulation. Every single one of those things is going to typically have some sort of state reporting requirement. It's going to have some sort of inspections. It's going to have some sort of particular steps the business is going to have to take. And so those are costs that are very knowable. Now, I do think that some states wisely do try to evaluate the costs that are imposed on particular types of entities. So whether this is the federal government or in state governments, there's a lot of places that require an evaluation of the costs on small businesses. Because one of the things that I think most of us in the regulatory space understand is that regulatory capture does exist and that the largest entities have the easiest ability to comply with regulations or to at least absorb the compliance costs of those new regulations. And so trying to make sure that you're not just saying, well, the cost to do this on companies that ship goods long distances is going to generally be low because Amazon and the biggest three trucking companies in America say, we can figure out how to comply with these regulations, doesn't necessarily mean that for the smaller a trucking company that may have one or two rigs out on the road, that they're going to be able to comply with it. So I think that states are smart to do that. One other question I get about cost-benefit analysis all the time is, don't you need high-level economists to do a good job of doing this? And you know, I think that one of the things people look at when they look at the federal model is every federal agency has teams of economists who are doing these detailed cost-benefit analyses. And I think if you want to do the the best of the best cost-benefit analysis, yes, you're probably going to need to bring on some economists. But if you look at the cost-benefit analyses being performed by the staff at most of the agencies in the Commonwealth of Virginia right now, the entire goal of Governor Youngkin's team that's overseeing regulations in the Commonwealth was that they were not going to have to hire professional economists. And in some ways, I think for the average person who's reviewing the cost-benefit analysis, it actually makes it a lot easier for them to say, hey, I'm a trucking company. Hey, I'm a fishing company, a fishery or whatever. I, I'm a farm. I can actually read that cost-benefit analysis that's coming out of state agencies in Virginia. And I can say, yeah, that looks generally right for the types of costs that we would be having to bear if this regulation went on the books. Whereas when they're looking at all of the modeling that goes on on some federal regulations and they're trying to say what's the discount rate and all of those complicated math things that again make those of us who are living in the administrative space kind of happy and excited and we like to have conversations about that for the normal people who are actually living under these regulations that's not helpful for them to have to try to wade through it so i think that in some ways having cost benefit analysis that is done by the staff who understand the rules and regulations but also better understand what the real practical import is can be a really effective strategy. You mentioned the Virginia example. Uh, we we have Virginia's uh, two lead officials on this, Andrew Wheeler and and Reeve Bull on the pod, and and we talked a little bit about the simplicity that the the the, the Virginia framework requires the, the simplicity of the analysis, and that really does seem one one of its virtues. I mean, nobody is purporting that these cost benefit analyses are 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 pinpoint precise, right? What's the what's the old joke? Uh, What's 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 the best proof that an economist has a sense of humor, right? All the decimal points, um, you know. But but I, I do kind of like that 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 part of the Virginia approach. 
Now, in the spirit of retrospective review, let's just do a quick retrospective review of our own. Uh, the report's been out for a few months now, and I know it got some attention. Um, is there anything off the top of your head that you do differently this time? Is there anything you've learned from the experience that you might you might add in the in the next uh, edition of this, if there's a next edition, or is it is it too soon to tell and you're still sort of wrapping your head around it? Yeah, so I think that we we definitely are planning to issue this report year over year and try to try to keep track of what's going on in the states. I think that what I would what we would probably try to do is try to give some credit for the executive orders. I think that you know while while there are reasons that we highly prefer statutes to the executive orders, we're seeing executive orders in the states. Arkansas um, signed one, you know, Governor. Uh, Sanders signed one pretty much right after she got into office. I think you're seeing governors across the country who are using this as one of their high priorities. And if a governor is really going to make it a priority and put staff behind it, they can be pretty effective in implementing a lot of these reforms. And so while we might not give you, say, a three out of three for having an executive order that requires retrospective review, I think we might say, hey, you get one or two points because you really are moving in the right direction and all you need to do is kind of make that more permanent. So that would probably be one of the one of the things that we will do as we update this report in the, the future years. Yeah, or maybe credit for uh, an executive order that stands the test of time over five years or, or survives, you know, a change in a partisan change in administration, some kind of durability indicator. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything else in the report that you would want people interested in administrative law and separation of powers to take away that you haven't already mentioned? Yeah. So one of the things that we kind of pride ourselves on at the Cicero Institute is not just putting out kind of interesting research. We try to put out good, interesting research. But in addition, we try to provide opportunities for states to take action to do something about the report that we put out. So we've done this in the healthcare space and telehealth. We've done this in some public safety areas. We've done this here in regulatory reform. And so we not only have this report, but we have model bills. We have one-pagers to kind of explain why these reforms are valuable. And then our C4 arm, Cicero Action, works with state legislatures, with governor's offices around the country to try to get these things passed. So for us, the real test of whether or not this report is effective is not just whether or not, you know, Adam and Jace call me and say, hey, would you like to be on the podcast, which we love doing. But it's also whether we're getting phone calls from legislators, whether our lobbyists that we have on the ground are saying, yes, there are state uh, Senate presidents, there are state speakers of the House who believe that it's time for their state to provide real cost-benefit analysis, to have you know a change in venue restrictions. And so we're in kind of the early stages. We're getting ready for the 2024 legislative session. I can't, you know, don't I wish I had a crystal ball and could tell you all the states where hopefully we're going to get some of these reforms passed. But I do think that for us, that will be the real test as to whether or not this report did more for us in actually providing a foundation that we could build upon to help legislators and uh, executive branches to implement these kinds of reforms. Okay, so you've you mentioned the Cicero Institute a few times, and so let's, let's talk about that, because as yeah. I mentioned, I'm a big fan of the organization. We, we've actually had your former colleague, Judge Glock, uh, he's now at the Manhattan Institute, of course. Um, he's been, I can't remember if he's been a guest on the podcast, or he's certainly been a participant in our roundtables, too. Um, I've been just a, a big fan of Cicero from the from the ground up. 
but I don't know that all of our listeners here in Washington, um, and of course across the Fruited Plain, uh, know uh, all that much about Cicero. So for those who haven't heard of you yet, uh, could you just say a few words about, about what the Institute is and what it does? Yeah, so the Cicero Institute is a relatively new state-focused public policy think tank. We work on policies focused on the state level. We were founded uh, by Joe Lonsdale and a group of other friends of his. He's a tech entrepreneur who has a venture capital fund in Austin, Texas, and has built a lot of kind of mission-driven companies. And he was, every time he built a company, trying to think through ways that he could improve the country by building a company. And then there were certain public problems that he looked at and he said, you can't build a company to solve this. The only solution to this is to change public policy. And that was really the impetus behind the beginning of the Cicero Institute. And so the Cicero Institute got started and initially was entirely focused on research. It was just kind of trying to come up with what are good ideas and hoping that people would take those ideas and run with them. And in uh, the fall of 2020, we hired um, some additional people onto the team, and those folks helped build the C4 to kind of really build an advocacy operation that goes out around the country and hires lobbyists. So we will, in the 2024 legislative session, we will have lobbyists on the ground in about 20 states around the country. We will also be working with some governors and legislators in a handful of additional states. Um, we are not partisan. We look for opportunities to work with legislators of both uh, political stripes who really want to have transparency, who want to have accountability, who believe that the market really can work even in government and are looking for opportunities to make improvements in the lives of their citizens. So that's kind of what we do on a daily basis. We're headquartered in Austin, Texas. We have team members all over the country uh, and have gotten to work on a number of pieces of legislation around the country. We passed about 20 bills through our C4 arm last year. Yeah, I recommend, uh, you mentioned your founder, Joe Lonsdale. He's got a great podcast of his own, uh, American Optimist, which is definitely uh, worth listening to. And, you know, actually, that reminds me that one of his colleagues, not at Cicero, but at, but at Esper, one of, the, one of the companies, and before that, one of the nonprofits, um, Malika Momond, she was an active participant in Gray Center events early on when uh, the, the first the nonprofit and the company were doing a lot of work on state regulatory reform. Uh, I remember the no mo red tape initiative out of Missouri and so on and, and on and on. So there's a lot of a lot of great work being done. But but my last question actually is about what you did before you came to the Cicero Institute. You mentioned you were at the Department of Labor uh, not long ago. Uh, Gene Scalia, the re- one of the recent secretaries of labor, he gave the the Gray Center's annual keynote lecture, and he talked actually about his experience as Secretary of Labor and it, and what it taught him about administration after years of of you know mostly litigating against agencies, which of course he's now doing once again. Um, but but what did you do at Labor? Uh, I don't know that you were working when he was there maybe it was during one of his predecessors but what were you doing there and and what did you learn about administration in your time there yeah so i was at the u.s department of labor from uh mid 2019 through the end of the administration so i got to work with secretary scalia um the whole time he was there and i was running the policy shop which is kind of the office that is overseeing all of the regulation that comes out of the department and so my good friend, John Barry, who runs uh, Boyd and Gray's law firm now, he recruited me to come because he and I clerked together uh, on, for different judges on the Fifth Circuit back in our early lawyer days. 
And I got the opportunity to work with him. And then he left to go to uh, that opportunity. And uh, Secretary Scalia asked me to take over the shop. And really what our job was, was to look at opportunities to make regulation make more sense. We built the Office of Compliance Initiatives, which really focused on trying to simplify regulations so that normal people can understand what they had to do without hiring a lawyer. We tried to identify opportunities to remove regulatory barriers that had been erected over time, whether that was to independent contracting or whether that was to uh, providing people with electronic disclosures on their uh, pension um, p- their pension disclosures that came out every single year and th- lots of people throw those in the trash and being able to have them somewhere on electronic copy where they could access them anytime they really wanted to would save both the companies themselves money, give people better access to them and ultimately save everybody money on fees that were going to pay in the pension. So, you know, kind of win, win, win. And so we were looking for those kinds of opportunities. And one of the big things that you learn in a job like that is kind of the power of the administrative state And that there are lots of people inside of those agencies who are perfectly comfortable flexing that muscle uh, to do what they want to do, not necessarily what the secretary wants to do or what the president wants to do. And so looking for opportunities to reduce those burdens and barriers to make it easier for people to know what the rules are, because that reduces the likelihood that an inspector is going to show up in somebody's factory, in somebody's office and say, hey, did you know you've been violating this, you know, special guidance document that we issued 38 years ago that no one's ever talked about. But unfortunately for you, we're going to hit you with a fine for it. And so I think those were some really valuable lessons of both how the process worked, but also the need to try to make it as easy as possible for businesses to comply, because there were otherwise going to be lots of opportunities that people would come in and make their lives harder. Thank you for sharing that. And we're coming to the end of our time here. So I'll say thank you for joining us. And just to remind listeners, We've been discussing the Cicero Institute's new 2023 National Regulatory Reform Progress Rankings Report, which we'll link to in the show notes, along with all the other Gray Center content that's mentioned during this episode. Thanks again for joining us, Jonathan. Thanks, y'all. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter.